0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast created specifically for our women here at First Pres Augusta. I'm Amber Barrett, and for the next several weeks, Vanessa Hawkins and I, along with various members of our Bible study teaching team, will be talking together about God's Word, specifically the book of Ecclesiastes and the unique ways it enlightens our lives. Joining Vanessa and I today are Margie Betts and Megan Pierce. First things first, ladies, Margie and Megan. Why don't y'all go ahead and introduce yourselves, and then we're all going to talk about the first time we received a regrettable haircut or hairstyle.
1: Well, let's see. I'm Margie Betts. I'm married to Jean Betts. I have a son. He has four children, and um, I think that's all I can say about myself for right now. As far as a haircut or style, well, my hair has been kind of an asset of mine, one of the few assets I have um so it's hard to think about a bad haircut but I guess if I really dig deep when I was a young girl my mother literally did cut my hair with a bowl and uh but you know what I still liked it so <laughs> it's always been an asset it is what can I say it's
0: one of those few things if you have a hair that looks good when you stick a bowl in your head and cut it <laughs> it's an
1: asset yeah, that's amazing it's an
0: asset so thank you lord very nice all right
2: All right, Um, I'm Megan Pierce. My husband Jordan and I have two children. Um, It's birthday month in our house, so I have an almost 10 year old and an almost eight year old. Um, I have been a homeschooling mom since my kids were school aged. This year we sent our oldest to traditional school, and I'm continuing school at home with my youngest, so that fills my days. Um, I love a good book, I love chocolate chip cookies, and I like good conversation with friends. So this is fun. Um, as far as regrettable hairstyle. Um, so when I was young, I asked my mom and I can't really date this. I don't quite remember how old I was, but I asked my mom for a piggyback perm. And so if you don't know what that is, that is like a double perm that is curly, curly hair. Um, and honestly, it's only now when I look back at it that I find it regrettable. Because when I had it, I thought it was awesome. Um, so, so anyway, it's funny. It's a past regret, but at the time, it was it was great. So, a piggyback perm. A piggyback perm. How old were you? I don't know. That's what I can't remember. I was trying to think through that. So, um, before middle school.
0: Okay, and you have pretty straight hair. So that was a significant I difference. I do.
2: My hair is pretty boring otherwise, but I wanted some curls, so. Yeah, and Google it.
3: (laughs) Well, my bad cut was, um, I instantly knew that that had gone all wrong. I instantly knew it because I gave it to myself. (laughs) So I was 13. I was just looking in the mirror and thinking, yeah, this side looks longer. And I'll just cut it. I mean, it's simple. And I didn't really know until I walked out of the bathroom. And my mom gasped and (laughs) looked like she wanted to fall on the floor. She's like, what did you do? And so, yeah, it, it it wasn't as even as I had thought when I <laughs> when I made the cut, but I had to live with that for a solid month with my hair really high on one side and really <laughs> really long on the other side. But it was I survived. It was fine. So you weren't willing to go get the other side as high. You would rather the. I, I just I let it grow out. High side. It was it was okay, and you know did, pulled it back, did some things that you know <laughs> to disguise it a little bit. But it was it was a special time of life. Yeah. At thirteen. Oh yeah.
0: You think you
2: can do a lot at 13? Those are tender years. They are.
3: (laughs)
0: Well, mine is similar, except I didn't cut my hair. My roommate in college cut my hair, and it was the time when Meg Ryan was big, and she had that super cutie little short hairdo, and it all spiked out, and this and that, and so my roommate's like, I can totally cut your hair like that. That is not a good idea. If you're going <laughs> to get hair close cropped to your head and then try to stick it out with gel, you need somebody who knows what they're I'll doing. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So I looked like a boy for a long time because my hair is too fine to hold gel. So it was it was a flop, it was a fail. And one time I dyed my hair green, but I won't get into I'm that.
1: Sure Daddy's day <laughs> or That's the
2: one day. we want to hear about.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just trying from blonde to brown and just that, that didn't work. You know, there's more to that than you think it would be. So. Well, regrettable hair moments, when they happen, we're tempted to swear off of hair color or new hairstyles for good, but of course we don't, because good hair moments exist as well and are undoubtedly one of life's little joys. In a small but similar way, pleasure and wisdom, which we will be talking about this morning, also have the ability to delight or discourage us. Last week, we talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 1 where Solomon, the preacher, proposes that all is vanity, a chasing after the wind. He speaks in the first chapter to the general vanity of life and the reality that what is being done in the world has been done before and will be done again, that nothing in life is new, and that nothing will ultimately remain. And yet, as we learned last week, these cynical thoughts concerning the limitations of the world and humanity are being used by Solomon as a catalyst, not a final conclusion. He wants his audience to be moved to look for what is permanent and not to settle for what is vain. So in chapter two, he invites us to consider with him the offerings of pleasure and wisdom. What is their worth? What are their limitations? How are they meant to delight us? What would cause them to discourage us? To begin, he lists out nine categories of pleasure and tells us honestly that he pursued each one to the full. Laughter the sober use of alcohol, art, nature, money and possessions, music, sex, affirmation, and work. Ladies, I want us to see this morning if we can be as vulnerable as Solomon and share our experiences with these types of pleasures. In what ways have you found these things to be fulfilling, and in what ways have you found them to be limited?
3: Well, when I hear Solomon talking about pursuing something to the full, I think about my relationship with work. I am a hard worker to a fault, and that isn't particularly problematic unless the motivation for the work is rooted in self. And I would say that's certainly true of me in my adolescent, young adult years. I was working full time in a demanding job that I loved and going to school full time in a very rigorous undergrad program. And the job was an internship that was It was an amazing opportunity. A lot of my friends were graduating without a job, and so I, I was compelled to hold on to the internship. And so that was an amazing opportunity. But I also, I was going to school full-time to keep my scholarship, which was another amazing opportunity. And instead of coming to the reasonable conclusion that most people in their right mind would have come to, that I needed to choose one or the other, the very arrogant me who always had something to prove did both. And so my life that season was just characterized by what the psalmist describes as eating the bread of anxious toil. He says in Psalm 127 too, that it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And the work was all about my own self-righteousness, proving my worth. And it was endless and gave fleeting satisfaction because there was always more to be done. There was no real rest in working into the night to accomplish the task, only to repeat the same anxious toil the next day. And so I I did achieve some measure of excellence by the world's standards, but the work wasn't honoring to the Lord at all because I was killing myself, quite literally. And I was existing on very little sleep, existing and not living. And my work was ultimately centered around my image, my accomplishments, and this anxious drive that could never be satisfied. So now it would be a while before I would find some balance and learn the blessedness and fulfillment of doing my work unto the Lord and receiving the sweet rest he gives. But that season of life is a vivid reminder for me of the emptiness of work not done as a worship to the Lord.
0: Yeah. Well, and what you're, you're highlighting the reality that working that hard for something that work isn't intended to give you will ultimately drain you of, of everything.
3: It's not
1: life-giving.
0: It's not (laughs) life-giving, but you are a hard worker by nature and you do delight in hard work. What's some of the pleasures of hard work to you?
3: Well, the pleasure of it, I mean, if, if I, if it's not unto the Lord, um, the, the pleasures are fleeting, but when I'm actually doing it because it's out of my gifting, it's how he wired me, there's just so much joy and satisfaction in that in knowing that I am living out how he designed me. And there's, there's just great beauty in that. Yeah. And satisfaction in that. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to prove. There's absolutely nothing to prove.
2: Yeah. I think I have likely explored, um, several of these at some time or another. And I think that might be the case for many of us. Um, um, I think oftentimes we pursue one thing kind of thinking, you know, that will satisfy or, you know, provide whatever it is we're after. And then when it doesn't, we sort of try on another one for size. And I think we're a restless people in that, that way, kind of moving from one thing to the next in hopes that maybe it might be what we're looking for. Um, but I think just for my own personal life experience and the life around me. Um, the the pursuit of the stuff, the things, um, money, possessions, um, is what stands out. And I think that's partly because, you know, we live in a culture where we're sort of trained to pursue things that ultimately point us toward gaining more, gaining more. Um, and so I've ex- I've experienced that in my own life and I just have felt that tension of trying to keep things in their proper place. Um, and I think that we feel those limitations um, in our pursuit, and you know we certainly see that that's the case here in the text. And I think I think one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes resonates with me is that you know I have found myself at times sort of coming to the end of of one of these pursuits and just sort of asking, you know, is that is that it? You know, um, I think a lot of times the thing, the vacation, the whatever it is seems to hold the answer for us to happiness or fulfillment. And then when we come to it, we feel that limitation. We feel that emptiness. Um, And again, we just, you know, was that it? And so, you know, I definitely have felt the tension in my own life of keeping things in their proper place. And just even kind of like Vanessa was saying, I think when things are in their proper place, there is a way that we treasure the Lord by enjoying His good gifts. But in and of themselves, they are, you know, Definitely
0: leave us empty. And don't you think that's one of the benefits of age? You know, when you're young, all these pleasures sort of stand out there, and you think that this having this thing is going to be the thing. And what's funny is looking back on on youth and saying, "Yeah, we went after that too, and we went after that too, and everything that seems so new and novel and wonderful when you're young." after you've lived a while and you've sampled it and you've gone after it and it hasn't provided what it promised to provide for you, it is sort of a twisted grace in the fact that it comes up empty and that the Lord allows it to come up empty.
2: Absolutely. I I was thinking too, um, you know, Amber, I was telling Amber that a few years ago I had actually studied Ecclesiastes and she said to me, I wonder how it'll be different for you now a few years later. And so that kind of speaks to what you're saying it is, you know, that life experience, I think, you know, does um, serve as a help to us, um, for sure.
1: Well, you know, my life has been all over the place. And um, there's no question that when I was young, because God took my mother at a young age, and I was on the streets, that I was angry at God. So my pleasure was for me. And I chased them all. And I did a really good job at it. Um, I have to laugh when I hear sober use of alcohol, because before I knew the Lord, I didn't know there was a sober use of alcohol. So, um, And I've seen a lot in life, you know, an alcoholic father. I've seen people in the family who have struggled and wanted wealth and received it and ended up being empty. I saw my late husband, who was brilliant and given so many gifts by God. He could have bought anything he wanted, and yet, it meant nothing. You know, I I mean, I remember watching him die thinking, wow. And by then I was a Christian. I'm thinking, wow, Lord, here's someone who's been given so much. And when life comes to an end, if it's not with you, what good is it? And, um, I think another part of seeing that, which is a wonderful gift from God, um, is, uh, you know, everybody knows I'm ADHD, but, um, All through school, I always felt stupid. And I mean, even in sixth grade, I was held back, which can you imagine middle school being held back? Didn't even seem to bother me. But I always felt really stupid. And that burden was really hard for me as I went through life. Um, Nobody told me I wasn't. Until I became a Christian, one day it dawned on me, as I'm looking at life in general, that I had wisdom and it was and it was a new wisdom it was something that he expressed in his word and i even looked at my husband who graduated number 1 from washington university and i thought oh my goodness lord you have given me something more valuable than being the smartest kid in the class and so when we talk about pleasures in life i have learned the hard way that They do lead, I mean, even the greatest things without the Lord lead to such an emptiness that it's, you almost have to grieve that Mm -hmm. um, for yourself and for others because it is a, um, it's so sad, Mm -hmm. you know, and when I look at people I know who are not with the Lord and it doesn't even appear to be a pleasure anymore when they are having fun because I'm thinking. You don't understand that this this life is fleeting, and someday you are going to be dealt with. This is it, and it's going to be so difficult and so hard. And I grieve for their souls. So um, now I struggle with pleasure still, uh, and we can talk about that at, at some point. But um, being able to see what God does and what man pursues it there is no greater gift. Mm. God's gift is the greatest. Yeah. I like what you said
0: about you actually have to grieve it, but misuse of pleasure is, and that, that's what Solomon does in these verses is he comes to the conclusion that I hated life. And yeah. what he meant by I hated life is not that, you know, I just hate life and mm-hmm. I give up and, you know, I hate God. I hate people. I hate whatever. It's I hate brokenness. Like, mm-hmm. I hate that it was intended to be this way and now it's this way. So pleasures were intended to be pleasurable. Yes. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with pleasures. But the misuse of pleasures highlights the brokenness and emptiness and what we were made to enjoy and what we're not enjoying. And so I think that that's what you see.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when I was living life for myself, um, my sister, who was a Christian, would often the next day say, you know that was a sin. And, and I'd be like, Oh, shut up. Because I didn't care about that. Now, if somebody says that to me, if I've done something that um, has grieved them, and they say it to me, it grieves me. There's no anger there. There's no, what do you know, it's, whoa, wow, I need to think about this and take it to the Lord. So it's just so different. There's less anger, there's Mm. more joy in wanting to enjoy life, but to also please God at the same time. Yeah. And to find that those two go hand in hand.
0: Exactly. That pleasure and pleasing God go hand in hand. Yep. And some yep. and we one of the big lies of the evil one is that they are opposed to each other.
1: And they are not.
0: Right. Mm-mm. Right. Well, I'd say quickly, one of mine that I go to is he listed affirmation. And affirmation to people, people's affirmation can definitely be something that I go to and I hide it in a way by saying, of course I'm supposed to please people. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be kind and I'm supposed to love them and I'm supposed to listen to them. I'm supposed to do all these sorts of things. But what I have found that in striving so much to please people, I actually resent them. Mm -hmm. And so I lose a genuine love of people because really what I want from them is something that affirms me. I've lost the ability to just please someone for the sake of pleasing them. And, but there is a lot of pleasure in, in pleasing someone and someone telling you that you've done that well. Sure. But it's the same thing you're saying, Vanessa, when I'm seeking to fill that sense of self and I'm valuable and I'm something, then I'll do all of these sorts of things and come up empty and actually resenting the people that I wanted to please to begin with. Solomon knew, so he knew the legitimate enjoyment of pleasure. But he also was highly aware of their limitations. And so he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Solomon turns to consider wisdom instead. He gives a brief nod to the fact that it is better to walk in wisdom than in folly because a wise person has his eyes in his head but a fool walks in darkness. Yet right after that brief nod, Solomon goes on to say, what happens to the fool, namely death, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I think that's a question worth talking about. But before we answer it directly, I want us to talk about the ways in which we have experienced the limitation of wisdom in our own lives. So how has wisdom, seeking wisdom,
1: How have you found that that you've come up short? Well, I think wisdom comes from the word of God, that um, you pursue the Lord. And I mean, Jesus is wisdom. Um, He's the word. So where have I come short, you think? Ask that again.
0: Yeah. Where has wisdom, you thought you would gain something by wisdom and you found that it didn't come through for you.
1: Yeah, because I think that in my limited mind and in my humanness, I can be, um, I can try to make that word go with what I want to do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But I think really when I'm pursuing Jesus, I become more and more aware of myself, my sin, my flesh. And, but it's not to me a thing that I would say, let me think about this you know, I think the limit to wisdom is thinking that we have it all together or that God is going to do things a certain way. The limit is that we don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen when I walk out of this building, but I know who holds me and I know what he has for me. So the limit to wisdom is that it's God's and not mine. Mm. Yeah. Yep. That's a great way to say that. Yeah, I think sort of going
2: off of that, I think the way that I feel the limitation of wisdom is that it just doesn't give us immunity to pain and a difficulty. And not only that, but it also just doesn't necessarily answer the burning questions for us of why when those painful things happen, um, you know, there are things that happen that we just can't understand and that don't add up. Um you know, we could be um, pursuing wisdom and suffer the consequences of someone else who who is not, and so we aren't immune to suffering and to difficult things. And I think that we would all like for wisdom to sort of pave the squeaky clean, pain free path for us, um, and and it doesn't.
0: Definitely, I mean, isn't that the thing we want to come up with a plan, a foolproof oh, plan yeah. Yeah. to get our kids into college to. Um,
1: and go to prison. Save our because marriage of it. to... and go to where prison because of it. Because I went to college. Because you pay to oh. get the <laughs> It was a side. Sorry. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. I got gotcha.
0: you. Yeah. So the painful limitations of the fact mm-hmm. that you pursue this wisdom, but it 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 cannot control a lot of the things you want it to be able to control.
3: Mm-hmm. I think uh, in particular seasons, I guess if I consider being a young adult again it was pretty easy to come to the end of my wisdom because I wasn't very wise. So mm. um, my wisdom suggested that I seize opportunities at any cost, at all costs, with no thought to my need for the rest and rhythms that scripture would command, that would very wisely command. And so conventional wisdom would say that most people need eight hours of sleep. And my wisdom said, well, you can function on less Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think arrogant people like exceptions or at least like thinking that they're exceptional. You know, I'd love to be able to tell you that some great awakening happened. But the truth is that that way of life was just not sustainable. And so what happened was I just couldn't do it. So the end of my wisdom was Mm -hmm. my body physically could not last in that. And so I think that those who are sober minded and wise are able to recognize and embrace their own finiteness, knowing that God's Mm -hmm. wisdom is the best plan for flourishing. And while the foolish hate the good and right limits imposed upon them by their humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. So if there
0: are limitations to wisdom, which we've talked about briefly, and I'd say that Solomon, you know, he had a right understanding of God, he had a right and thorough understanding of mankind. He had an incredibly intelligent, creative understanding of the world, along with experience and the ability to understand, apply that understanding correctly to life. But it still didn't guarantee. At the end of it all, he's like, the wise still die like the fool. In other words, it it's not, it can't save you. Wisdom mm-hmm. can't save you. So if it doesn't guarantee pleasure or security Or justice, if it's not a bargaining chip, you can hold up to God in return for his favor. If it can't save you or your loved ones from painful disappointments and ultimately death, then
3: why be wise? I think it's important to remember that just even in the context of this, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a book of exceptions to conventional wisdom. And we see that all throughout the book. Yet it doesn't negate the fruitfulness of living by godly wisdom, given in, for instance, Psalms or Proverbs. It doesn't negate that. We are stretched by considering the exceptions that Solomon raises, and ultimately, we learn the futility of life not lived in reverence to the wisdom of God. And through the paths of pursuing pleasure, materialism, Solomon demonstrates for us that whatever our pursuits are, they are ultimately empty and incapable of providing lasting fulfillment. He finally concludes that fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole duty of man. And so it is the same fearing or that reverence for the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And the one who has that wisdom sees rightly. It's like um, Margie was saying, it is that wisdom then that brings about our flourishing.
1: So while it doesn't save you, it does cause flourishing. It does. Yeah. Plus, I think that as we... um, live with Christ longer and longer and receive more of his wisdom as the body of Christ. We are able to bring along people in the wisdom that God has given us because we've lived through that. We've seen where that has taken us. We've made those mistakes. And it's only in God's great wisdom that we can use that to his glory. So as we gain wisdom as women, it's vital to be able to speak to uh, younger women who need that wisdom. And that's not to say that we have all those answers, but we can at least tell them, here's where that led me. And Christ has shown me that this is a better option. And even though this option is harder, you will find more peace, more joy, more assurances. You're going to sleep better when you follow the hard road. It's always easy to take the road of pleasure. So it's it's a great gift God gives us. And as we grow with it, we've got to share it. And that's what I feel the body of Christ is all about too, as a community.
2: Yeah. So just in thinking about wisdom and why to pursue it, kind of, you know, when I was kind of thinking through this, I was sort of connecting it with the um, previous question of, you know, how, um, you know, how we feel the limitations of it. And, you know, I mentioned just that brokenness. And so I think, um, you know, I see a ne- I see it necessary to pursue wisdom because it directs us through that brokenness, through those unanswered questions and through the difficulty. You know, wisdom doesn't necessarily change our circumstances, but it changes us. Um, I was reading um, in Romans 8 and there's a verse that may be familiar where it talks about creation was subject to futility and hope that we'd be set free from bondage of corruption and would obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so that futility, I think, hopefully creates in us a longing for what is to come. You know, but we're living in the here and now, in the brokenness, but wisdom is directing us through it. And so I think wisdom allows us to experience some of what we've not yet fully obtained that we're waiting for the fullness,
1: um, for in the life to come. Absolutely. So like Vanessa, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and also that wisdom assures us of our salvation. So that's the greatest gift of all, right? So what is the reason for wisdom is to know where we're going as well, you know, and that, um, it's not all about this, and we need to rise above those circumstances with the Lord. So, I love how, as we look through Ecclesiastes,
2: it can sort of, you know, at first glance, it can feel pessimistic. You know, in our house, I like to say, I'm not pessimistic. I'm a realist, you mm-hmm. know, and you see a little bit of that in Ecclesiastes. But, you know, it can kind of, you can kind of feel that. But I think just in our discussion today and as you travel through the text, um, we see that we're being pushed on to something greater. We're being pushed on to the Lord, um, you know, through these, um, limitations of pleasures and, and wisdom.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's not nullifying those things. He's saying, use these things to move forward to the main thing and the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Wisdom and pleasure can't save us, but they do point us to the one who can, And so Solomon says at the end of chapter two, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And because of the work of Jesus, we friends are the one who please God and the ones who are therefore privileged to receive pleasure and wisdom from his hand that comfort and support us even in the midst of all that is broken. With that note of encouragement, we hope you will join us next week. Take us to run errands or invite us to sit on your back porch. We will be talking about Ecclesiastes 3 and what it means for there to be a time for everything. We'd love for you to listen in.
3: Sometimes
2: a light surprises The Christian while she sings It is the Lord who rises With healing in His wings When comforts are declining He grants the soul again A season
3: of pure shining to chew it after
1: the rain